Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cap. So in the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about the economics of olive oil. So stick around for that. But first, a data point more from the news, and that is 43.68%. That was the inflation rate, the annual inflation rate in Turkey as of April. One of the key issues in Turkey's election this weekend was the country's economy, which has recently been struggling with its worst crisis in decades. With inflation soaring around 50% here and the lira collapsing, resulting in a cost of living crisis. At the end of 2022, Turkey had the fourth highest level of inflation in the world. The country's foreign currency reserves have also been dwindling in recent months. It's not the most auspicious economic circumstances for an incumbent to run for re-election, and yet Turkey's president, Tayyip Erdogan, came ahead of his main rival in last weekend's election. He's also expected to be in good shape to win the second round in another 10 days or so. So between serving as prime minister and also president, Erdogan has been leading Turkey for about 20 years now, and in that time, he's pursued some pretty unorthodox economic ideas. And the economic indicators I mentioned are some of the effects, but perhaps so are his continued re-elections. So we thought we'd dig into the economic record of Erdogan and Turkey more generally. So, Adam, there are plenty of leaders that we could probably both think of who have had impractical economic ideas or whose economic plans backfired when they tried to implement them. But Erdogan seems pretty remarkable, to me at least, in that his widely proclaimed economic ideas seem to just simply be wrong. Uh, I mean, he has widely talked about how higher interest rates produce inflation when most argue that it's the opposite, uh, and which is why the Federal Reserve and other central banks have been raising interest rates in response to inflation. And Turkey now seems to have suffered the consequences with those very high inflation rates I mentioned. Now, I don't mean to, you know, compare Erdogan to the worst dictators in history. And yet, you know, I know from your own book, Adam, Wages of Destruction, you know, you describe Hitler's economic ideas in Nazi Germany, and they were all very pernicious and unfeasible. But, you know, in a weird way, you you seem to even grant them some coherence on their own terms. So I wonder if Erdogan is some even exception to that. I mean, how unusual is it for a leader of a modern economy to have economic ideas that just don't make sense, again, on their on their own terms. Yeah, I mean, I think another way of thinking about this would be to say that, you know, politicians, of course, have ideology and convictions and beliefs, but it's, it's unusual for those to intrude into areas of technical expertise. I mean, the other figure that comes to mind is somebody like Thabo Mbeki, um, they're in many ways rather important um, South African president following Mandela, who... Um, who had a completely disastrous theory about HIV/AIDS um, and stuck to that line, right? And you normally expect politicians in the modern age to pay deference to the structures of expertise, the sort of social division of labour that we have, right? So where politicians don't 
don't uh, claim to have strong views about medicines. I mean, Donald Trump, after all, with uh, during the COVID epidemic, also espoused various kind of miracle cure views. So it's not a it's not entirely unheard of. It's relatively unusual in the economic sphere because the power structures of economics are deep and powerful. Most you know, most incumbents in most systems are deeply aligned with conventional wisdom and common sense. And the price of flaunting that common sense as much as Erdogan has is is pretty considerable. So what is the kind of hidden logic here? And I think there is a deep and powerful hidden logic, um, which is kind of well understood on Erdogan's part, really. And this is where I would credit him with a real rationality, which is he just regards the whole issue as a struggle for power. It's really about that. And if there's one thing that Erdogan understands, it's power. And he understands that the sort of orthodoxies that are that say, well, you can't do this and that you must raise interest rates that will be damaging to his base, which quite likes low interest rates because of the abundance of credit, that that kowtowing to them would indeed be a kind of humiliation. His career was made by Turkey's economic crisis of the early 2000s when the IMF was called in. And it's against that backdrop that he's emerged as this defender of sovereignty. He's not wrong that there is a powerful set of Turkish business interests, which are increasingly ambiguous about the kind of position that, that Erdogan occupies and are quite vocal in their criticism of his economic policies. And he doesn't like that. And he understands that that is founded in an economics which he is intending to flout. And since this is monetary stuff, a little bit like the Russians have demonstrated, if you're willing to do capital controls and various types of manipulation for a very considerable amount of time, at least, you may be able to, you may be able to get away with it. So I think the question really is, can Erdogan keep pulling rabbits out of the hat? Or is there just a limit to how long you could maintain this kind of position for? Uh, but the remarkable thing really is that the, the, you know, the ultimate kind of punishment that, that was, has been promised over and over again by the financial markets on this heterodoxy you know, has failed to arrive in the devastating form that people expect. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if, with his analysis of power that you're pointing out, I mean, presumably that would be channeled into some economic model that he has in mind for the country. And, you know, we've talked a lot in the case of China about the alternative growth models of consumption-based growth versus investment-based growth and, you know, the respective advantages and disadvantages of each of those. But yeah, which then has really been at work in Erdogan's Turkey? I mean, it doesn't seem like the current situation with you know, with both falling exports and falling foreign reserves and high inflation, doesn't seem like that's much conducive to either investment or consumption. So is it neither? What kind of model is that? And yet the Turkish economy continues on, right? So the the crucial thing, I think, to grasp about the Erdogan story is that it's a little bit like the Modi story in India, that he is the beneficiary of a national story of incredible economic and social transformation over the last 20 to 25 years. Um, or a little bit like Poland as well, right? So um, Poland and Turkey obviously are high middle income countries compared to India. But the point I'm making is that in a sense, there's a story here of the emergence of a powerhouse economy, a regional player of significant size, a bona fide G20 member, a technologically advanced and sophisticated society. I mean, I remember visiting Turkey in the 1980s and like much of the Eastern Mediterranean, it was still very much a low income, you'd, you know, you'd be tempted to say developing economy, right? That is not the, the Turkey of the present day. I mean, it's a transformed society. So much so that Erdogan will lay claim to a national economic miracle 
But that's, I think, the starting point, right? If you go to Erdogan's massive new airport outside Istanbul, you can see where the narrative of success comes from. It's a profoundly impressive airport, the likes of which the United States doesn't have and is very unlikely ever to have, to be honest. You know, it's a huge monument to public affluence and global consumption hosted by Turkey. Um, so there is a growth model there, and it's shifted over time. It's not, you know, as spectacular as they claim. It doesn't compare with China's or in South Korea's, but um, it's nevertheless a growth story, which has crushed critical thresholds. So there's a growth engine. It's unbalanced. It's unstable. It's currently kind of scrabbling, I think, for grip. The old formula aren't working as well as they used to. And the current inflation rates are punitive. They're really tough. And it's still a society with a substantial number of really poor people. So as much as this success story is there, there are tens of millions. Of course, it's a large society, 80 plus, in, 80 plus million inhabitants. So if you have a poverty rate of, well, it depends on whose numbers you believe, and the statistics are coming very politicized. If you have a poverty rate of between 20 to 30% by Turkish standards, then you have tens of millions of really poor people. And for them, inflation is a matter of, you know, really of survival. So this is where the pressure is going to build up on Erdogan and the choices become increasingly uncomfortable. So those advancements in Turkey that you referred to, those have taken place at the same time that Turkey has drifted definitively away from the European Union, at least its previous status as a candidate for joining the European Union. Uh, you know, hardly anyone in Europe, nor Erdogan himself, claims that that's a realistic possibility now of Turkey joining the European Union. But 20 years ago, that was at least technically, formally, a live possibility. So, yeah, that dream is dead. But I wonder, were there other alternatives between the sort of stark black and white, sort of non-European country versus European member state for Turkey? I mean, if we assume that full membership was always going to be a stretch, you know, what other alternatives have gotten lost? What else might Turkey have looked like under those alternative circumstances? Yeah, I mean, right now, of course, full membership does seem like a huge stretch, though, you know, given that Ukraine, for instance, is being seriously discussed as a, you know, nearly inevitable future member, you, you do have to ask, you do have to ask why, because Turkey's economy is in infinitely better shape than than Ukraine's. Um, but, um, and 20 years ago, this was an absolutely real prospect. I mean, uh, it's worth remembering that Erdogan, you know, in his early days was fated as you know, um, the Muslim world's answer to Christian democracy. This was precisely the kind of middle of the road, pro-business, pro-market, moderate, quote unquote, Islam, Islamic politics that the world seemed to need. And all the way through, you could say to the Arab Spring, where Turkey was a huge backer of, of the the government that took over after the collapse of the military dictatorship in, in, in Egypt, um, Turkey was still being discussed in those terms. And I think it's worth... Also reminding ourselves that, to say the very least, right, the, the reason for the failure of the accession process is, is two-sided, right? I mean, th there's no doubt that the Turks were very unwilling to make concessions on Cyprus, um, which Turkey, you know, uh, annexed the northern part of in the early 1970s with a, with a military intervention. But that was a long-standing issue that everyone was perfectly familiar with, and nevertheless, initially, um, the, the Europeans and Turks were able, were willing to engage in serious conversations about accession. Uh, what flipped is the politics on the European side, where a number of states became profoundly hostile to the idea and essentially ruled it out over the course of the 2000s. So Erdogan, you know, another narrative of, of Erdogan is not so much that Erdogan put the spanner in the works so much as the Erdogan that we know today is a creature, a product of the failure of those hopes. Um, 
and I think this goes, you know, you can, this is a complex historical question. I don't want to, we, we shouldn't try and decide this here, but we should avoid the narrative that says, but for Erdogan, Turkey would be part of the EU. Um, it, that, it's far more complicated and bilateral than that. And it's striking that, say, the, the opposition, one of the promises they made and this is, I think, to really answer your question of how one might imagine a future, is that you know, as soon as they took power within a matter of months, they would they would move forward on negotiations which have been going on for almost a decade about visa-free travel for Turks between Turkey and the EU. Because obviously there's a huge Turkish diaspora in 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 Western Europe. Uh, ever since the 1960s, Turks have been migrating in in a very important part of the of the of the workforce in many European countries, notably Germany. Um, and it would be an obvious next step to move towards a kind of visa-free regime. Um, and there was a protocol arranged with, with Erdogan, uh, but then various key legal issues to do with the crafting of anti-terrorism law, rule of law issues fundamentally, obstructed further progress on this. And one of the promises of the opposition was that they would they would clear away these roadblocks to a more, you know, um, a, a relationship that was, you know, once you get to visa-free travel, they are talking a more intimate relationship than, than NAFTA, something closer to maybe the relationship between the United States and Canada, for instance. So having, at least as a matter of policy to some extent, having turned away from Europe somewhat, does Turkey now under Erdogan at least stand as an economic power in the Middle East? I mean, we've gotten used to talking about Iran and Saudi Arabia as sort of two poles of the region, you know, including on our podcast several times. Does Turkey belong there with them in that conversation? Absolutely. No, it's the it's the third pole in the in the modern, you know, Western Asia or wider Middle Eastern scenario. Uh, it's, it's a crucial player uh, and, and, and has ambitions to be an even larger player on an even larger scale. scale. Um, but whether you think about the Arab Spring and their sponsorship of the of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, regime in in uh, government, one should say, uh, duly elected and then couped against um, in in Egypt, um, their relationships with Qatar, um, which is one of the key axes in the modern Middle East, right? The Saudi Emirates axis on the one hand and the Qatar Turkey relationship on the other. Uh, these are really very fundamental. Um, Turkey is a huge player in Syria. Uh, you know, if you, if you think about the various contending players in in the in the ghastly conflict in Syria, then then the the backing of, uh, of of Islamist groups in northern Syria was 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 crucially, you know, a, 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 a Turkey play because the Turks, of course, are involved in a, a cross border, um, you know, multi state um, struggle to contain the threat. What they perceive. You know, quite reasonably from the point of view of Turkish nationalism as the threat of Kurdish uh, aspirations to independence, which is the great challenge to the Turkish nation state. It's playing everywhere. It plays across. In Libya, it's an absolutely key key factor. And and in, in Africa, I mean, when I was in Tanzania, I was really struck by the presence of Turkish construction um, firms because uh, Turkey does infrastructure, not on China's scale, but that's one of the promises of Erdogan's regime is it builds, it, it does nation building, a bit like, you know, the Adani group in India or, or the promise of the Chinese. Um, this infrastructure thing that is such a problem for both Europe and the United States, and particularly for the United States, the emerging market economies do well, they do it fast, they do it to modern standards. Um, and Turkey is one of the players in the global infrastructure business. If you want to have a, you know, a, a metro system built uh, and you're a low-income country, Turkey is going to be one of the, the construction teams that you look to. So the, the ambitions of, of uh, Ankara are 
absolutely dramatic. And again, you know, if listeners want to experience the this, take a flight, Turkish Airlines, I highly recommend it. Um, and uh, no sponsorship deal, but just, uh, you know, they're part of that network of East Mediterranean, Western Asian airlines like Emirates, for instance, which have emerged as major players in, and, and Erdogan's ambition, and you see it in the scale of the, the airport they've built, is to be a global hub. It's the most, flat, hands down, uh, the most cosmopolitan transport hub I've ever been in. Yeah. Um, I did want to end, though, by going back to the question of how this economic situation in Turkey right now could possibly get resolved. I mean, how does one get out of this kind of policy trap that we're describing with low interest rates and high inflation and growth led by the construction sector? I mean, Erdogan's opposition, the centrists in the election are sort of offering more orthodox ideas, namely involving uh, higher interest rates that seem not to be terribly popular. Certain key businesses in Turkey seem to be doing fine and probably won't lead resistance, namely the construction sector. So, yeah, what is the political economy for finding an exit here? I mean, is the only real alternative just to wait for the policies to eventually collapse under their own weight and hope that Erdogan will be left holding the bag here? I mean, Erdogan has shown the willingness to pivot. Um, and I think that's essentially what everyone is counting on. I mean, if he, it's a little bit, you know, the argument that we had with Xi as well, that, you know, once he got his his third term, he would he would become more pragmatic. And then lo and behold, um, zero COVID ends, right? So the the question is whether you'll see a similar pivot with Erdogan. The, the problem, of course, is that the pivot that Erdogan would have to perform as the opposition have been brave enough to admit, is actually, it's, you know, inflation hurts, but deflation hurts too and will hurt other people and can potentially hurt even worse. And that is the, that is the risk that a stability-orientated opposition would have to take on itself. Um, so the most likely outcome, I think, is, a, is, a, is an Erdogan victory, and then a kind of fairly pragmatic realization at some point that the inflation rate they're currently dealing with is in fact dangerous. And, you know, a nationalist program of consolidation. I mean, and he's shown the ability to do that kind of thing in the past. After the 2018 crisis, there was a period of consolidation. You pick, you know, some some bureaucrats, uh, folks from business or academia that, and Turkey has a rich you know, roster of talent in both dimensions, um, and choose somebody like that to carry out your stabilization package. The good news for Turkey is it's a dynamic economy. If they can actually achieve a, a real exchange rate depreciation, exports will surge. Um, the government itself is not heavily indebted. So there's room there on the fiscal side. And what you would presumably hope for is a monetary tightening, an egalitarian, you know, orientated, socially socially conscious efforts to stabilize, but not at the expense of the worst off. It's a self-inflicted crisis in political terms. The fundamentals of the Turkish economy may not be as stellar as they like to claim, but are certainly sound enough to sustain growth, uh, the, the, the question really is, can they, you know, can Erdogan find a face-saving way? Does he even understand the need? Yeah, it seems like that's a big question, is like maybe we will soon know just how literally he believes the things he says. Um, and yeah. And the power play is a crucial thing here. Like, so, 
you know, if somebody can craft this as a strategy that doesn't look as though he's surrendering, I mean, that's the absolutely crucial thing, right? Yeah, maybe I'll be made to eat my words and it'll turn out that Erdogan has uh, sort of managed to square the circle. Betting <laughs> against him is like, it's, he's, a, yeah. he's, a t- he's really a survivor, yeah. Well, yeah, we do need to take a break here, but uh, we will be back to talk about one of Turkey's potential exports in this coming potential next phase for Erdogan, namely olive oil. So stick around to hear about that. So I'm here to talk about CrashPlan, which is a provider of cloud-based backup services for your computer. As always, when you support our sponsors, you're also supporting us, but you are also helping yourself out. Go to CrashPlan.com ones to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. So what does CrashPlan do? Well, their work in the world is to protect your work in the world. You know, just ask yourself, how much are your ideas worth? Whether it's a term paper you're working on, or a book, or a business plan, or an audio file, like the one I'm recording right now, whatever it is, you've worked hard to create it, and now you can protect all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution with options for everyone, from solo creators to growing businesses. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. When something happens to your file, whether it's a hard drive crash or your cat knocked a cup of coffee onto your laptop or even just an accidental file deletion, that happens too. Either way, your files are just a few clicks away. Crash Plan makes it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, Crash Plan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Don't let data disasters slow you down. Crash Plan has your back and keeps you moving. So go to crashplan.com slash ones, O-N-E-S, to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time Buy one, get one offers for ones and twos listeners exclusively. That's crashplan.com slash ones. Back up better with CrashPlan. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, you're juggling a lot of things in your life. Work, kids, any semblance of a social life. And if there's one thing you wish for, it's more time. Maybe you've heard the advice that I've gotten, which is prioritize, decide on the things that are really important. Well, how are you supposed to do that exactly? I think that's a fair response. And I think that's where therapy comes in. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who have experienced major trauma. It's for people who have experienced life. Life is hard. We all need help. The only difference is some people are willing to ask for it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time 
for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is 60%. That is the approximate average price increase for olive oil since a year ago. The price jump is due to a spike in demand with the at-home That's cooking. largely the product of production shortfalls in Spain, the product in turn of major droughts that have afflicted Spain this year. Spain produces half of the world's olive oil, but now it is witnessing lower crop yields. So there's a slump in oil production and prices of olive oil have been pushed to record levels. So yeah, we thought we'd get into the overall economics of olive oil because, you know, who doesn't like olive oil? So, Adam, most of the world's olive oil is produced in the Mediterranean region. That includes Spain, but also Italy, Turkey, Northern Africa. It's a region with a long political history of empires, trade, etc. Got me wondering, is olive oil sort of historically significant commodity? I mean, is there history that would tell us whether yeah, it has sort of played a strategic role, whether for the sake of nutrition or as a fuel? What does history tell us? Yeah, it's hugely significant. Um, I mean, and the, the history of cultivation goes back about 8,000 years. So, you know, it was practically as long as we've had agriculture, a little bit shorter than field agriculture, but nevertheless, it's really a basic commodity of the Mediterranean region. Um, we have archaeological evidence of olives being grown in Crete, uh, from 2500 BC, solid, solid um, of, of actual cultivation. The the estimates that we have for um, you know consumptions of oil of olive oil in the ancient world are huge, um, far higher per capita, I think, to, than 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 today on average anywhere in Europe. So you know, estimates go as high as 50 liters per annum. That's like almost a liter of olive oil per week. Um, more moderate estimates put it in the 20 to 25 liter range. The implication of that is that that uh, people in the ancient world were maybe getting as much as a third of their total calorific intake from oil. So it really was fuel that the Roman Empire in particular ran on. So in my reading about olive oil and the economics of it, 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 it seems like fraud is a particular problem in this industry that comes up recurrently um, in in writing about the business. It got me wondering, I mean, is that because olive oil is a particularly easy product to counterfeit? Is that what's at the source of this? Yeah, the the only other commodity, I think, which suffers from even worse problems in quantitative and value terms is probably wine making in Europe. Um, and both in Italy and in Spain and Germany, indeed, there have been huge scandals around adulterated wine and likewise around adulterated oil. So I think it's got something to do with the fact that they're fluids, you know, it's difficult to detect origins, you mix blend things together, it's difficult to sort out where stuff came from. And the margins are huge. And a cynic, of course, would say that, that, you know, when it comes down to it, though there is an entire culture of connoisseurship and appreciation, both for oil and for wine, actually, people's judgment is pretty faulty and suspect. So if you take some sunflower oil and add some additives, which, you know, give it a slightly greeny color and a slightly off color flavor, uh, you know, you can probably sell it to somebody as, you know, low quality of olive oil. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, 
sunflower oil, which trades for, you know, maybe um, uh, a euro a litre can be marketed for five, ten euros a litre. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a funny way of earning a living, to be absolutely honest. But uh, significant also for, um, you know, organised crime. Yeah. I mean, to take that, that Italian case more specifically, I mean, what role does olive oil now play in the economy of the vaunted Italian mafia? I mean, is it comparable to the business that the mafia does in illegal drugs, for example? I think the whole, the agro-mafia is a easily underrated uh, phenomenon. Like it's uh, the, you know, because the, the mafia comes out of the countryside um, originally in Sicily. It was kind of the strong arm of, you know, a landlord class. And so, yes, they, they have a very strong presence in the countryside. Um, estimates vary. You know, it's it's uh, the, the overall fake the extra virgin olive oil market is estimated by some people to be as big as $16 billion a year. That's serious money by anyone's reckoning. Um, all told, the agro-mafia is thought to bring in about 15% of the, the mafia's business. Um, and it's not just mafia and Angretto and all of these other, you know, the, the other organized crime groups in Italy are, are equally strongly involved. I mentioned the price increases right now being uh, driven partly or largely by the droughts in Spain. Uh, I'm curious in general, I mean, how could we say how climate change is affecting the olive oil industry overall? It's a very environmentally impactful business, olive growing. Um, the, the, the groves have, um, in the form that they really took after the dramatic expansion. So this is an industry that's undergone a really huge expansion in recent years. As the Mediterranean diet has caught on around the world, you started, Cam, by saying, who doesn't like olive oil? Well, I, I remember, you're younger than me, I remember a world in which olive oil was something very exotic that you had to go to a fancy Italian restaurant to have, and it wasn't available at home. And so, you know, its use has become far more ubiquitous, and we're seeing now a huge expansion, for instance, in in growing in Latin America, like, which didn't used to be a major source of olive oil, but has now come online as a huge competitor for Spain. Um, but it is very environmentally impactful. One of the real risks is erosion, um, somewhat attenuated, in fact, if you have denser growth, because you've just got more vegetation. But they then come with chemical use, with pesticide use, with fertilizer, and uh, with irrigation and, and, and water consumption is the the big deal, both in the... Both in the um, in 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 um, cultivating the the trees, but also then in in the pressing and the 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 entire process of, of producing the oil um, produces large amounts of waste. It's a it's an it's a, one has to think of it as an industrial process, and it is dependent on um, on aquifers. It's dependent on the availability of pumped water, um, and therefore fragile and exposed to climate change. And we are seeing in this sector. As a series, you know, as these as these global droughts begin to spread around the world and impact, you know, we've had the huge drought in the American Southwest and Midwest of recent decades, of an ongoing and massive drought in in East Africa, and and this the drought in Spain is is very very significant for this industry. And one effect will be that the industry will relocate, um, but there's limits, you know, to doing that in in tree based agriculture because obviously it takes time for the groves to develop. Um, and in the short run, yeah, you're going to see these swings in in prices, which are as high now, I believe, as they I think basically ever been historically in in so, so, you know as, recent, as long as recent records have been kept. Yeah, we'll see where else cultivation may spread. I don't know. I, I remember reading recently about how there's starting to be a, a wine vineyards in Sweden now, and maybe uh, we'll all be eating a, a Swedish olive oil soon. Who knows? But in any case, uh, we should leave 
the subject here for now, and we'll be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.